0: Unloose the goose. We'll take no use, Your paradigm's run out of time and we've got no use.
1: Unloose the goose. <laughs>
2: Hello, 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 and welcome to episode sixteen of Unloose the Goose. Can you believe it, guys? We've done sixteen episodes. This is a pretty serious outfit we got going here, huh? Right?
1: Yeah. Hell yes. Yeah.
2: So today Today we are going to be talking about agorism, and specifically we're going to answer a listener question. Jack solicited some topics in the Telegram group, which you can find at UnlooseTheGoose.com, somewhere around there. There's a Facebook group as well, and one of uh, our, our loyal listeners wanted to know how it is that we got into agorism, why we got into agorism, and also some of the mistakes or insights insights or advice strategies that we could impart on the audience. Of course, agorism is revolutionary market anarchism. It's the idea that rather than competing within the system, we should compete with the system. In fact, we should create entirely new systems. We should engage in counter-economics, which is specifically gray and black markets, black markets being those activities that are expressly prohibited by the state, gray markets being those activities where you have to ask permission in order to engage them. But more broadly, counter economics can be defined as anything that de- evades or defies the state. So all sorts of anti-state activity can can be encompassed in counter economics. And it was a philosophy, really a strategy, lined out by Samuel Edward Konkin III, who was a libertarian activist that departed from the Libertarian Party in the in the internal political libertarian activism, so I think we have some some ideas and some wisdom to share to you guys, but before we do that, how is everybody doing this afternoon?
0: Good, and should we do a drink check-in? Sure. People get mad when we don't do it. I know. Water this and kratom.
1: It's carbonated spring water from the ground that has been carbonated with a soda stream.
2: Classy. <laughs> it's the only to one one Berkey Biden. first, too. <laughs> I've got, got my there? combo 20-year-old rum. That looks pretty fancy. Um,
1: Anakin. Anakin, all right.
2: Dang. On,
1: no Perrier. I don't know. I don't know who this Sal guy is. I've
2: got it on He's deck. An imposter. What Sal's,
1: in, Sal's, <laughs> Sal's in, in, in Florida now. now, now I
2: just I just visited Florida and I was curious, Sal. How do you navigate all the dead bodies that are just piling up there? Since oh, it's crazy. The governor The governor lifted the restrictions.
3: Yeah, they're just dropping dead. Like
2: uh, Wuhan China back in like March, people just falling over the street. <laughs> I remember those clips and then it was like, I never saw that in my neck of the woods. You
3: think like people are like reminiscing on those clips would be enough evidence to prove that it's all a scam. but Somehow they still buy into it.
2: No, no. A lot of people are buying into it, but a lot of people aren't. And that's a good thing. Well, let's just get right down to it. Like I said, uh, the show topic came from a listener who uh we we engage with the listeners in the Telegram group and on the Facebook group. So definitely go check those out. But uh, they wanted to know how we got into agorism, why we got into agorism. So why don't we start with Sal, who's been doing an agorist podcast for quite some time. How did you get into agorism, Sal? Oh, man. I
3: think originally I I – When I first became a libertarian, I I did it by learning economics. And that's kind of what pushed me into libertarianism. And this was back in, I don't know, 2013, 2012. And I immediately picked up on Bitcoin, thank God. And that sort of led me down the agorist path. Then, around 2014, I went to Fast in New Hampshire. And this is really, that was sort of like a a defining moment in, in my experience with the liberty movement. Because that's where I learned not how to think like an anarchist, but how to actually live like one. Yeah. So I learned everything from how to use precious metals for exchange purposes, how to use cryptocurrencies. Um, I learned about aquaponics. There were seminars on 3D printing and that really sort of, especially those three or four things right there, that really sort of set me down the road to practicing agorism. And then later on, I started reading Rothbard and some more philosophy, and that's when I found Konkin, and I put all the pieces of the puzzle together, and I realized what, I, what I've been doing for for a few years at that time. And around 2018-ish, I started the Agora Podcasts, and shortly after that, the New Libertarian blog, and here we are today.
2: Right on. Sounds like you're carrying on the work of old Samuel Edward who came who coined right. the term New Libertarian.
3: Yeah, yeah. He actually had a blog called, or I'm sorry, back then it was like an actual published a journal,
2: yeah.
3: and that's where we, we draw the name from. Uh, one of the things he said about the blog is that the only thing that they all agree on was that they all disagree, so I tried to allow as many people to write on the blog as possible. There's no censorship. If anybody out there is interested in writing about agorism or accounts of economics, feel free to shoot me a
2: DM, and we'll, we'll get you in. Cool, cool. What about you, Nicole? Where did you learn about agorism, and why did it appeal to you? <laughs>
1: My story is going to be different than everybody (laughs) else's. (laughs) Um, I think I've been practicing agorism for most of my life and just didn't know it. So, you know, lots of examples of agorist practices in my life of just figuring out direct uh, exchange, because I've always been frustrated by systems that have rules that don't have a good why. It's Mm. just because it's the rules, right, which is a lot of what we have in our societal structures right now. And I was a full on, I think communism is going to work full disclosure until about 2004 when Portland, Oregon was in the throes of expanding their transit system. And I had been really against how they were doing it because it wasn't serving the purpose it was designed for, which is to move people from one place to another. Mm-hmm. They actually, through adding light rail made it harder to get from one place to another on their uh, public transportation system. And as I started digging under it, I'm like, man, if I could have just designed this, it would have been better. And I'm like, wait, that's not fair. And it was the, that's not fair moment where I was like, wait, communism is not fair. And what is more fair is allowing, you know, things to naturally grow and develop as they should. And, darned if I wasn't working on the same floor in the building as Cascade Policy Institute, which is a free market libertarian think tank in Oregon with one of the nation's top minds on land use planning, smart growth transit, John Charles. And I was friends. I didn't really understand what they did, but I was friends with their vice president. And he said when he heard me kind of talk about this, instead of being somebody who like bashed you over the head with libertarianism, he said, well, why don't you sit down with John? And I went into John's office and he talked like big words and explained everything about how, you know, um, when people need to get from point A to point B, they will figure it out and they will build those systems to get there. But if you try to plan where you think people need to go or try to force them to work near, near where they live, for example, that always fails because of the nature of how communities shift and change. So That started me on a whole path into, you know, reading Hayek and getting into the Austrian economists. And then I worked in the free market think tank policy, public policy movement for 14 years. And the longer I was there trying to impact public policy for the better, the more I realized that the system that we are trying to fix is the problem, (laughs) And that naturally just that, that led me then into agorism. Like you just have to, the only way to opt out is to opt out on your own. You can't really take anybody with you. You can show other people how, and the more of us who figure out how to voluntarily exchange with one another, the less we need all of that. It's like, what if we just developed our own society and just, you know, kind of like don't need you. And, and that's where I am today. So I, I took a weird journey.
2: Nice. Well, I think it's a it's it's a somewhat common journey that people get irritated and frustrated and disillusioned with politics, and then they're still passionate about liberty, so they're like, there's got to be another way. You know, it's like an evolution. So what about old giggly man down there who's been cracking up? Like, he's got some the peace pipe or something going on over there. First of all, when you,
0: when you were punching yourself in the head, Nicole was talking about running into the wall of politics, it made me think of it. It was a private sector thing, but we were in a meeting one time and our project manager pulled a bullet out of his pocket, held it up to his head and started tapping the primer with his fingernail. And that's how a lot of politics can feel like, can I just please find a way to shoot myself and end this? Uh, For me, I was an, an agorist before I knew what an agorist was. I was, like Nicole said, most of my life. When I was in, like, third grade back in the early 80s selling cinnamon toothpicks in school, I was practicing agorism. I just didn't know what that was. Um, I grew up in a family that was very much a uh, JFK Democrat family. They actually – I'm actually called Jack, John called Jack, because JFK was John called Jack. That's how – And so being a natural rebel, I was the Republican child in, like, mm-hmm. middle school – Um, but as I got older and actually figured out what it was, I realized I was a libertarian. And so I've been a libertarian since the nineties. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't a person that would call myself an agorist or an agorist, right? I, I, I didn't know what it was. I had never heard of it. And as I, as I got more and more into my, my form of activism and podcasting and stuff, I started hearing about all these different schools of libertarian and anarcho thought. And, you know, you hear this agorist thing, and this is, black and gray flag and it looks cool and all. I looked into it and I, I don't know. And I was still looking for something to join at that time. Like I want to join the movement that's going to be the movement that's going to change the world. And I remember, listen, I think it was Ian Freeman. It was one of those guys from up there in the Free State Project in the radio station they have. And they were they were kind of mocking agorism. And I kind of agreed with it. It was like, you know, these people think you are going to change the world by selling tacos out of their 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 apartment or whatever. I was like, yeah, you're not going to change the world with that. But at the same time, it was bugging me because I'm like, well, that's kind of what I tell people to do. Like whatever side hustle business you can build, go ahead and do it if you can not pay taxes all the better. When I started looking more into it, I realized like, OK, it was just like becoming a libertarian. I, w- I didn't become one. I just figured out the name for what I was. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that's what I think one of the big mistakes people make with, with agorism is they think it's like something you become or something you join, like you join the Agorist Society or something, and they send you a you know a black and gray card that has your name embossed on it, and then we're going to elect Agoras or something. Like it's that's that's like having an atheist church in the words of Larkin Rose. And I realize how powerful it really is because instead of trying to change, instead of me trying to change John's world or Sal's world or Nicole's world, Agorism is about me changing my world for the better, and then you participate when you want to. And so I, th- that's kind of how I got here. So I I didn't really come. I just found out I was already there, and 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 that the name was okay to, to add to my descriptor of myself.
2: Yeah, it's a cool name too because it doesn't have a bunch of baggage like a bunch of other aspects of libertarianism and the libertarian movement, which is you know I don't anarchism. know a lot of jaded people and yeah and anarchism. The
1: attack on the word anarchy really bugs me though.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been bastardized and taken over by the left. But the left has a lot of roots, like our, like Pete R. Quinones, his, uh, his awesome documentary, The Monopoly on Violence. There's a great section that has a history of of anarchism. And it really does start off a whole lot in, in the left. But I think the pure consistent thing would be the market-based situation. But, um, my journey with agorism, um, I've been an activist since 2002. When I caught a documentary about 9-11 Truth by old Alex Jones, who's here in Austin, and it was on cable access, and that kind of blew my mind, sent me down a rabbit hole of uh, exploring the conspiratorial view of history and trying to wake people up about the New World Order and Council on Foreign Relations, all that stuff. And then I was introduced to Ron Paul in 2007. And much like Jack and the were saying, I, I realized, like, oh, wow, the libertarianism, that's what I've been jiving on. There was an ethics class in college that we briefly learned about it, and it was appealing to me. And so I got involved with political activism. Of course, Ron Paul didn't win, but he did spur the modern liberty movement and, and ha- pull us all out of the, our homes and to meet each other. And so we formed a political action committee called Texans for Accountable Government, and we started having legislative victories. Victories at the, le- the state level and the local level. For example, we managed to stop police officers from being trained as phlebotomists that would pull you over and do blood withdrawals on the side of the road. This was a federal grant program. Uh, we also pushed back on the Fusion Center, the Big Brother Information Gathering and Intelligence Sharing Centers. This was in 2010. Come to find out several years later, they actually did a threat liaison officer report on me for talking about freedom cells, of all things. But we were having these what seemed like victories they took a lot of time a lot of effort a lot of energy a lot of schmoozing with politicians which isn't very enjoyable and go back to the banging on the head yeah I and i started i started feeling like this isn't satisfying enough for me i want total freedom i don't want this incrementalism and i realized that even though they seemed like victories on the surface in reality, we weren't reducing the size and scope of government in our lives, which I think is a big criticism of the Libertarian Party. It's like, what have you guys done? What have you done for me to reduce government in my life? And they don't they're like, well, we maintain ballot access or we stopped the Republicans effort to make us pay these filing fees. And it's like that doesn't do anything for me and my freedom. What's the point? So I started looking for like, OK, well, what are some other ways to go about creating freedom in a free society besides politics? And I started exploring what i called then parallel institutions now i call them alternative institutions but one of the first ones was like me and my ex-wife would go to farmers markets and we would encourage the vendors to accept silver dimes in exchange for their stuff and we had a chicken farm at the time with like 120 chickens so we would trade a dime a dozen for the chickens like they used to do then silver dropped and all of a sudden it was like a dollar 80 for a dozen eggs, and we were like, no, this isn't working for us anymore. We still did it for a while because it was cool to to pop people's cherries, so to speak, with silver dime transactions. Occasionally, we would come across some old people, and they're like, oh, yeah, I've been in silver. You can't trust the Federal Reserve Bank. And we're like, those those are our people. This was before cryptocurrency also. But I was into parallel institutions. I don't know who turned me on to agorism. It very well may have been some of the Free State Project guys because they're always like ahead of the curve up there, Ian Freeman and Free Talk Live. But I do know I went back through YouTube. I was looking for a video that I did. And back in in 2009, I think it was or 2010, uh, I gave a speech on this Agora.io, this guy, George Donnelly, who was an early activist. He since moved to Venezuela, of all places. And it was called Building a Free Society, Individual and Community Action and Agorism. And whenever I learned about agorism, it just seemed like a really great vehicle because I've always been concerned with. The philosophy is great. We can talk about the philosophy. We can debate the nuances like libertarians always do. But what's important to me is how do we get from here to there? And when I read the New Libertarian Manifesto and started studying counter economics and getting more into alternative institutions, cryptocurrency, the perfect example, it really was like, wow, this is this is how we do it. And now here we are. And like agorism is spread. It's a super hot idea. And there's all sorts of little counter communities and counter economies and counter technologies. And I think that while we've come a long way and Samuel Edward Conkin would probably be pretty excited to see all the stuff going on and all these podcasts about his philosophy. uh, We still have a long ways to go, but I think one of the most promising ways to get there is, is through agorism in my opinion.
0: So what, what do each of us think, you know, go around, you guys call yourself out like, is to like some some good first steps for people to start incorporating agorism into your life. I mean, what is a good first step? A person's like, yeah, this sounds cool. I want to be part of this. I want to be able to call myself an agorist, not just in thought, but in action. What do I do? Uh,
1: Look at your life and how much of it is on the wrong side of tax structure and start taking the first steps to get on the right side of that. And what I mean, and Jack, you talk about this all the time on your show, is I own a business, therefore money comes into the business, I spend it, and then what's left is taxed. When I work for an employer, money comes in, I pay my taxes, and then what's left is spent on my expenses, right? So turning that upside down, I think, starts getting you into the mindset of, how can I operate differently? And then from there, extrapolate to, well, what if money isn't involved? I, I mean, right. I think, like, figuring out how to interact in the market, which means you have to have something that you can market, mm-hmm. is the first step to getting started.
0: I think the only person on this panel tonight that that doesn't have a above board, I pay taxes on my business business is Sal. Right? <laughs> And, I mean, I've only heard are. you say it on your show, so I figure it's okay to say
2: it. Yeah, <laughs> <yeah>, no, no.
0: <laughs> I'm not saying it. I do. Yeah. but He's but, an but, extremist. Uh, but yeah, no. I, I, to me, one of the mistakes we make when we, we look at agorism is we think only gray market, black market activities are agorist-type activities. And I think making simple structural changes to the way you file your taxes and getting a good CPA and like last year, I kept over $10,000 more money, not just because of you know the Trump tax cuts and having a business. I kept over $10,000 more because my accountant told me how to structure things last year to maximize the tax code. Most people's accountants wouldn't have even known to tell them to even consider doing what we did. Um, and it was very easy. It didn't really involve work. So just keeping more of your money to me is like, it might be one oh one kind of baby agorism thinking, but you know, if we think of like an archetype of of, of the agorist mindset, like John Galt, right, out of the uh, Anne Ryan, Ryan uh, novels, right. It wasn't a black market; it was modern day capitalism, right in the market. But it was also, I'm going to do my own damn thing, including leave and take my shit away if you don't let me do my thing.
2: Yep, take the toys and play with them elsewhere. What do you got, Sal?
3: I think the key to all this is entrepreneurship. You, it's very difficult to separate a from entrepreneurship. Uh, all counter-economics is entrepreneurial in some sense. Uh, you know, whatever it is that you happen to be doing, whether you're, you're growing, uh, you have chickens or you have a farm or you're, uh, you are have a cryptocurrency exchange or something, I mean, whatever you're doing, whatever your counter-economic activity is, you have to sort of mix it in with entrepreneurship to really make it a uh, Agoristic, I guess, is is a good way of putting it. But the three things, obviously, I always tell people I know I'm selling a broken record is grow your own food, get a 3D printer, and become your own bank. But um, it's important to sort of meld that in with an entrepreneurial attitude because that's how you sort of pull away from the old tax structure that Nicole and Jack were talking about, right? It's, it's, you know, wage work, you have, you have, uh, the state will automatically deduct money Mm -hmm. from your production. Right, that, that, the word for that is slavery. That's that's what happened in the antebellum South. It's just that they kept 100%. Uh, nowadays, the slave masters keep, depending on where you live, 40 to 60%. So, I think it's important to like Jack and the floor saying, minimize your tax burden, become an entrepreneur, and like I said, grow your own food, become your own bank, and get a 3D printer.
2: I think uh, what you're talking about with the wage stuff. I was talking to my kiddos about income tax. They're seven and nine. And uh, they're pretty with it. We have some pretty adult conversations. Sometimes I try to not be too adult with the conversations because I want them to preserve their innocence. But talking about income tax and how if you're an employee, the government takes the money automatically. And we also were talking about checking accounts and how the government in a checking account has a back door. So really it's not secure money when it's in a checking account. They can go levy it and my son was like, "Well, I don't have to worry about that, dad. I'm just going to be I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to have my own business." And then we we're like, "Well, you still got to worry about the checking account and stuff like, and the credit card transactions." He's like, "I'll just use cash. Then they won't even be able to get it." And it was like it was a proud father moment. <laughs> um, I'm trying a lot of my activism is like how can I set the stage for them? Because I'm already into the matrix, you know, I got one foot in, one foot out like Jack was saying, but I want to set the stage so they can have freedom their entire lifetimes. And uh, Nicole uh, brought something up that got me thinking, like, you take stock on where you're at. Like, OK, I have this program or this 401k that gets taxed in this way. And I have uh, this tax bracket. I have this whatever. And you take stock of it. You can even write it down on a list. And just understand that it's going to be baby steps, right? And a lot of people aren't. Capable or not willing to take the full agorist leap because when you do so, there's certain risks and there's uh, certain inconveniences that come with that. So I would just encourage people to take it slow, to always be focusing on the balance between freedom and, you know, being able to maintain your property or convenience, right? Right. But pay attention to that discomfort because the further you get into this whole liberty world and the more you care about consistency, which uh, Samuel R. Conkin says, the way that we get the free society is through the consistent application of the philosophy of liberty, living as consistently as possible. So pay attention to when you have that discomfort and when you feel like, oh, I feel kind of like a statist. Those are the kind of things that perhaps you should put some work into. So you can get more towards that consistency, which I imagine is feeling pretty good over there for Sal because I know every time I write the freaking check to Uncle Sam, it feels really, really dirty. (laughs) But at the same time, I take – I have a checking account. I take e-check, you know, and without that, it would be really difficult. So it's – I guess, you know, until we have the strength and numbers necessary for us to all opt out, which I'm hoping that we can do with Freedom Cells at least or just growing a huge Agora community, you really got to pick your battles I guess I would say. Y'all vibe on that?
3: Yeah. I, think, I think that the idea of, like, taxation is not necessarily to <clears> – <throat> you want to minimize it as much as possible. And that's half the reason why I like to use cryptocurrency and precious metals, because you're able to avoid the inflationary tax. But in terms of, like, everyday exchange purposes, um, you know, the only real tax that I pay right now is sales tax. and I wouldn't encourage anybody to do anything that makes them uncomfortable or to get themselves in trouble. Obviously, that's that's how they got Erwin ship. But I think you should do whatever you possibly can to stop paying for that famine in Yemen, right? Stop paying for your, your friends and your family to be welfare slaves. The only way to do that is by minimizing your tax burden.
2: Yeah. Did you have something, Nicole?
1: Well, I was going to say you can gamify the process, too. So. Something that happens to a lot of libertarians and having been in the liberty movement for 14 years, I've seen it, is that that arguing about you're not as libertarian as I am that happens or you're not as perfect as I am. You know what I'm talking about?
2: Mm-hmm. If
1: somebody asks me why there aren't more women in there, it's that. It's because you guys are a bunch of dicks fighting dicks. with each other, right, about who's more libertarian than the other one. Okay, I'm not very nice, but it is what it looks like no, from it's the true. outside.
2: Total assholes uh, and dickheads. This is what it looks
1: <laughs> like. You know, agorism kind of the same way. It attracts people who already are used to really, you know, duking it out over subtle differences of philosophy. And if you're arguing about it, you're not doing it. And so something that we do here is we gamify the process. You know, when, whenever we don't have to earn the money to pay the guy, it goes to the independence fund. And it's like this fictional amount of money we never had to earn. If you don't have to earn money, you don't have to pay taxes on money, and it's outside the system. So every time we grow chickens, that's, you know, 25 bucks a chicken. I'll have 12 bucks in of hard cash, and the longer we go here and have our infrastructure more independent from the system, the lower that number is, the more feed we're able to grow here, that sort of thing. And so we start just seeing, like, who can get the bigger bank account going from, you know, the, the money I never earned bank account sort of, am I any get it? So I think you can also look at those uh, small steps and I'm just highlighting what you're saying, John, that start, take the first step. Don't take the Canyon leap. Just take one step and then take a second step and then take a third step and then look around and see what else you can do.
2: Yeah. <laughs> do something besides arguing and debating, of course.
0: I think, yes. like, my, my takeaway from this, and I started thinking about this when this question came in and we decided we would do this show this week, is also think about how you can use these technologies and how you can use this one foot, one foot out to your advantage. And so what I'm thinking about with technology is SLP or simple ledger protocol, which I fully don't understand yet. But Vin explained it to me, Vin Armani, for those that aren't familiar with him, like probably one of the most switched on crypto dudes out there. And um, he was talking about how like, but I don't think this is very realistic. I love the analogy, but I didn't think it was very realistic. Like you could have this cafe and everybody in there gets paid, let's say in Bitcoin cash through SLP, but nobody actually takes any money. So John comes in and buys a coffee and I'm working the cash register, and since I'm on the cash register, a piece of that goes to me as my pay, a piece goes to the building owner, a piece goes to Nicole supplying the coffee, and it all happens instantaneously, and since the fees are low, it all works. I don't know if that works in a brick-and-mortar business. like It's a, it's a nice idea, but before all this bullshit happened, which is what we say in Texas, we don't say COVID, we don't say quarantine, we say when well, all this bullshit going on. So before all this bullshit was going on, Nicole and I had started a conversation about entering into a business together with spices, seasonings, and things like that. I had started adding coffee to my spice and seasoning mix. That seemed like a natural fit. I don't want a pack and ship product. I don't want to deal with any of that shit, but I can market the hell out of things to a couple hundred thousand people a week. Right. So like, this seemed like a good idea and she was going to send me some different coffees and I was going to play with it and send it back to her, see where it goes. And then all the bullshit happened and it was like, we're not doing that right now. <laughs> well, when I think about SLP with this, if Nicole and I decide to do this, what we could say is if you want to buy this stuff, you buy it in cryptocurrency or you don't get it. Yeah. And as long as we can find someone to buy the, the base product from in crypto, we could operate 100% in crypto. We could have an account that pays suppliers. We can have an account that pays Nicole her share and my share. And when somebody buys it on a website, boom, it all happens instantaneously. It's impossible to really track. Everything still happens. Everything still ships. Everybody gets paid. It could be done with a smart contract attached to it. Done. But, you know, what you said, John, if you couldn't take e-checks, you can't stay afloat. I can't run my business. Nicole can't run her business 100% on cryptocurrency right now. We don't have enough adopters. Mm-hmm. But since we have a business, like, I don't need this thing. Right? So if we make an extra $10,000 a year each, great. If we make five, great. If we make twenty. Okay, what whatever it is, it is. It's all money we didn't have, but like, I, can't, I don't know about you. I, I could live on $20,000 a year, but I'd be freaking miserable, right? Mm-hmm. So I have a quality of life I want to maintain, but since my existing business does that, now I have the freedom to even I entertain an idea like that.
2: Yeah, the side hustle. I know somebody that has a packaging and shipping operation. If you guys were looking for another that's my, partner. That's my
1: missing piece, dude. I have it's already set up in the other room a coffee. There. Yeah. I have 100% yeah. crypto coffee minus shipping. That's my only thing. So we need thing. sources
0: of like herbs and spices, right? I need that guy. If we can get that together, <laughs> we could do this 100% crypto based. And if we if we all make 5 grand, we make 5 grand. If we make 500 grand, we make yeah. 500 grand. But like then you don't like I don't have to I don't have to live off this. So I can then have the ability to limit my transactions to crypto transactions. And I think that would actually work in the long run. I think it would actually, it would slower build, but as it did build, people I think would like, cause I have people all the time, Jack, I finally got some Bitcoin. What do I buy with it?
2: Yeah. People like to be MSB, the
0: first. right? Buy yeah, my memory. You, like, yeah. you know, or buy Nicole's coffee. But like the more places people can spend crypto, the more people will adopt crypto. Yeah. <clears throat> and then you actually use it instead of like, I'm going to hold it until I go to the moon with my Lambo, right? Like that's, that's not the, that's not the purpose of cryptocurrency.
3: That's why I, I try to be 100% crypto because with the 3D printers and 3, at 3D printer go burr, people will pay me in cryptocurrency, then I, I fulfill all the orders using cryptocurrency. and yeah, the entire exchange is conducted in crypto. And if somebody pays me in cash, uh, I still fulfill that order in cryptocurrency, and it's just like you know I'm getting non-KYC crypto. So it's really mm-hmm. just a great way That's to more valuable. Yeah, right, right. To collect more Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash.
0: But see, you're a great story story with that because I bought a a printer from you. I paid more for it than I could have bought it on Amazon. Mm. But I could pay you in crypto. I could do it with no KYC, and I like you. So I did that. You got Mm. a few orders from Nicole and I. When I put you on my show and talked about it, I linked I said, if you just want to pay less, you can, or you can buy it from Sal. And people still bought it from you Mm -hmm. because they could do it with crypto. And and so that tells you right there that there's a certain power to that <clears throat> to seller. And I think we all agree the best way to get crypto without anybody knowing how you got it is to to sell or exchange something yeah. for it, right, not yeah. buy it from Coinbase.
1: Yeah. During my yeah. kickstart campaign, somebody wanted to support me with crypto, and they reached out, and I said, "Of course." Yeah. And then somebody needed to do work here, and they wanted to be paid in crypto for carpentry. And
2: mm-hmm. that's it's a great way. It all
1: happened, and. To keep
2: it in a circular economy. I was just researching some New World Order stuff, and it's it's crazy the parallels because the Great Reset and the technocrats are going to be using blockchain in order to ID every human in order to track data more efficiently, right? But we agorists are also going to be using blockchain, and I was doing some research on this concept of a circular economy. It's this Agenda 21 sustainability kind of thing where they want to keep – all of the resources and not waste any resources and all stays within economy, which is also, you know, some permaculture principles, but this is like permaculture plus control, technocracy, panopticon. But the same thing with crypto. If you can find someone to accept the crypto for, uh, the cost of goods, like we were talking about, that's pretty valuable. I was doing a Bitcoin mining operation back, uh, I don't know, it was like maybe 2015 or so. And I convinced the landlord – I rented out this little office space, super small. It was like a utility closet. Filled it with all sorts of miners, installed two big mini splits, which ultimately killed me because those were pretty damn expensive. But I convinced the landlord to accept Bitcoin in exchange for the rent and the exorbitant utility bill, which would be like $1,500 a month and stuff. It was nuts. But if you can get that circular economy, then you can stay outside of the banks altogether, which if you get money as income – income, right? Because there's a lot worked up in that definition. But if you get money's income into a checking account, you can still not claim it, right? You're not coerced into claiming it. But if you get audited, it's an easy trail and the government can easily backdoor into the bank account and get all that information. But if it's outside of their purview, yes, they can still do forensic analysis like they did with Ross Ulbrich. But if it's just your extra $5,000 a year side hustle, they're not going to be engaged in that. And one more thing, I think you had a great you know, some good wisdom in that side hustle thing. If you have your base living expenses set through a mainstream in the system job, then you can be a little more experimental and a little more risky with the side hustle. And if you can set up a couple side hustles and one of them really takes on, then you can do this inverse relationship where maybe you ask your boss for part-time work, or maybe you take that leap where this one's bringing in the 20 K a month that at least allows the minimum bills. I don't know what city that you'd be needing to live in. Probably had to own your house for that. But you can just dive right in, and then maybe that can continue to grow, and you could be all the way outside the system. I'm and just again, gonna that say I its...
1: could live pretty well for 20k a month. Nice. Yeah, yeah, a month. Yeah. A year is a little different.
2: Oh, 20k a month? Yeah, month. Yeah, like, uh, so
0: I, I yeah now that. that's, that's a goal
2: right there. I, that's not <laughs> a problem, but I
0: I, I like more. I <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Well, can I the think, other thing I, I, think... I like is like, so my wife has my grandkids. My wife. Day. In in the car, right, and and they're running around and doing stuff, and I want her in a brand-new car. I'll drive my 2005 pickup truck when I'm not in my Challenger, and so I want her in a brand-new vehicle. Economically, the thing that makes the most sense for us to do is a lease. It's one of the few places where if you buy the right vehicle, leasing actually makes sense for us. Because I have mainstream income, because I have tax returns, because I can say this is how much revenue my business did last year – when I go down to Subaru and say, I want that green Outback right there, they're like, sign here, and I walk out with a car. Mm-hmm. Right? If I'm doing everything off-grid, I don't have access to finance. Now, I think we'll get to a point where there's going to be enough. There's already things going on, like you know borrowing and crypto and whatever. But right now, I, to, to have the convenience in my life I want, I need a certain amount of income. And that also keeps the government away. Cause I pay my tribute. I do all my taxes through, you know, my accountant, through a CPA. I have extra insurance so that if they audit me, I have pre-arranged team to go in and say, bullshit. That's not what happened. Here's what happened. Like that makes us highly defensible. We're not a good audit risk for the government. And and that makes these other things, things that like I probably shouldn't talk about them publicly, but someone's got to talk about it publicly. (laughs) There you go. You know, and if you're not me, and you're doing this shit. Your your risk is almost zero if you're if you're doing like this above board component, and you're doing these other things. Yeah, it, a lot of it. So, Kyle so and I are both going to be in front of a firing squad as soon as Biden becomes president.
2: <laughs> That's oh, the man. Doing. We'll bail we'll bail you <laughs> out with our so. <laughs> our release squad. Um, I when I had children began to lower my risk threshold. Um, you know, still got some aggro stuff, still outside the system in certain areas, but I wasn't as provocative and in your face with getting arrested and stuff. And now that my kids are a little bit older and I finally got tired of living in poverty, there's also another level of that where I want to have a big income and I want to shoot for the stars and I want to give them everything that I can give. I want to have a life where I'm living off my passive income, so on and so forth. But in order to do that, I've always had that struggle where, you know, it's really going to be difficult to be an agorist millionaire, unless you got into crypto early on, there's a whole lot of agorist millionaires that did, but through an entrepreneurial enterprise, you know, that could be difficult, not even millionaire. Like I want to be, I want to have $10 million. I want to be a billionaire. And if only, if if only I reach 10% of that goal, a hundred million bucks, I'll be satisfied. Right. And so the struggle is like, where do you balance that excelling? Cause I think the community really needs to catch up. Right, And one of the biggest things that can be an X factor that can enable you both to have wealth and convenience right? because it's like a wealth – for me at least, it's a wealth thing versus freedom or it's a convenience versus liberty and outside the system. And I think one thing that we can all work on and we can all build and we are doing this podcast even is to grow the community so that we can have – the convenience we can't have the support we can't have someone to get our back we can rely on each other rather than relying on the state if they shut us out and we can have a market that's willing to do things off the book willing to do non-KYC willing to do crypto so maybe we can all lift ourselves up right there's that analogy about the the ocean the rising tides lift all the boats up or something like that you know as we grow the agora then we'll all be able to have more wealth and more convenience and more safety and security while being outside the system.
1: Yeah, I really so wish Xavier was here because of his FiRon project, which his, is kind money. of tapping into corporate structure but introducing the agora inside that bubble,
2: yeah. which There's adds a, lot of a layer that, of
1: security. Um, we're gonna. I
2: did to business with the blockchain that. once, the Dash blockchain the there's other clones of the dash cryptocurrency and they have these called they're called master nodes so you can operate a node that uh, hosts the blockchain right in a decentralized distributed way but uh, dash and some other clones of it forks of it they have what's called a master node and if you have a thousand dash i believe it was then you can make votes and the dash blockchain the dash cryptocurrency has a treasury and so every month X amount of Dash are devoted to this treasury, and people can do – they can place little bids with little projects to help grow the ecosystem and market and develop and stuff like that. And I got a couple gigs awarded to where I was doing business. I was being paid by a decentralized blockchain, and this was really cool because if you are a taxpayer or a company and you pay someone over $600 – you have to do a 1099. You, they say you have to, right? That's another one of those things. Where like, How the hell are they going to know if you don't file it on someone? But to be doing business and getting paid by a blockchain, there's no law about a blockchain having to file a 1099. So that was always a really cool thing for me, and it just shows the really big nexus between agorism and cryptocurrency. They go we hand in hand.
0: We have a cool question from the uh, YouTube chat on the stream. Uh, please, please explain... The uh, the value of doing no KYC or the risk of doing KYC when you're buying a legal product. Why would you care that somebody knew you bought something that was totally legal? One example I would give, and I, I'm interested in what Sal is say about 3D printers, but uh, I happen to own a a, a a giant stainless steel milk can that has a heater element in it that makes liquid turn into vapor and produce you know fuel that you might spill into your mouth. It's completely legal to buy. The company that sells them is uh, Mile High Distilling. You can go online and buy one right now. You can use your MasterCard, your Visa, your American Express, whatever you want. But you can talk about making biofuel in your garage all you want. You can even get the little federal permit that says, hey, here I am, which I don't think is really a good idea. But everybody knows what the hell you're doing when you buy an eight and a half gallon milk can still, right? Now, the odds that somebody's going to bother me about that right now are pretty low, but you never know what is going to happen in the future. And if you look at every government where they've actually had severe implosions of their currency, the first thing they do is they go after everybody they can extract from. Mm-hmm. They put in capital controls, and then they go after people. And sometimes they go after people, not even to get money out of them, but to say, look, we did something good. We cleaned it up. We, we, you know, we, we, we're doing our job. they were justifying our existence. And so right now, if you buy a moonshine still... You, they have to record who you are. They don't necessarily do – it's kind of like um, like the form you fill out when you buy a gun. They don't send it anywhere. But if somebody wants that information, you know who's, like, you know who's selling them, and you can go get it. And like, how does that relate to 3D printing, Sal? Well,
3: I think with 3D printers, the idea is it's a legal product, but what you do with it is your business. And if you intend on doing something in the gray market or the black market with it – you obviously don't want the government to know that you have this machine. Moreover, any product, I don't care if you're buying cell phones or computers or whatever it is that you're buying, you don't – why should the state have any knowledge of it whatsoever? And the way to get around that is by not utilizing KYC, by getting around the know-your-customer laws. If you read the Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi makes clear this is why he invented Bitcoin, was to remove – to make exchange possible without these KYC requirements without this sort of third-party verification because it's, it's in this way that the state interjects themselves into our affairs, into our exchanges. That's how they can come in and say, uh, you know, you can't buy X, Y, and Z, uh, and if you do, we're gonna know about it and you're gonna get in trouble. So by using cryptocurrency where there is no KYC or AML laws, you can purchase at will. You can buy and sell whatever you'd like and no one has to know about it except for the two parties to the that exchange. That's the benefit of having a peer-to-peer cash.
1: Yeah, and I think you have to go to the big picture on that. Why is it any of their business to know what you buy? Like, If I buy a phone that doesn't have GPS capability and next year there's a law put in place that all phones have to have GPS capability and an app on them to track you so that they can figure out through contact tracing if you've been exposed to the Rona, they know I bought that phone.
3: Well, think it about, wasn't
1: illegal when I bought it, but it can become illegal. That's the idea. Right. So, and they can they can do a whole profile on you based on your purchasing choices.
0: That's the
2: technocracy.
0: Think about the um, the states that turned everyday law abiding citizens that never broke any law laws that we would break. They they've never broken any laws at all into felons overnight by saying if you have a magazine with greater than ten round capacity, mm-hmm. you, you have to turn it in. And, like, Connecticut did that. I think New York did that. Some other shitty states, probably the one Sal used to live in, did it. Mm-hmm. Um, and But, yet it was a very ineffective law, right, because everybody that had those magazines just said, fuck that. I'm not doing it. I'm not turning it. And, and what were they going to do? Go house to house to house and say, hey, we need to come in with no search warrant and see if you have any 30-round magazines. Like, that just wasn't – you can't do it. I mean – Even if you legally could do it, if if there was no constitutional impediment to that with search warrants and search and seizure, it's not legit. Like, can you see like Hartford, Connecticut PD telling, well, you need to go to every house in Hartford. The police chief would be like, piss off. We don't, Mm -hmm. we don't have time. Even if he was for the the decision, he'd be like, I don't have time to do that.
2: There could be boogaloo boys out there just waiting for the trigger.
0: But if you had to do KYC, when you bought a 30-round mm-hmm. magazine back in 1984, they could go, yeah. boom, Here's, and then they could send everybody a letter. We are aware that you are in possession of at least seven 30-round magazines. You must either, A, turn them in, or B, inform us as to where they've gone yeah. in the next 30 days, or a warrant will be issued for your arrest.
2: That would now, be better. If That'd I be told more you that
0: could even happen before they passed those laws, you would have said I was, you know – a dope-smoking conspiracy theorist. The only reason it didn't happen is they don't know where the magazines are. Those states, once they passed that law, if they had a database they could go to of where every 30-round magazine was, they would have had some Karen in, in their you know internal department coding mm-hmm. a thing to send those emails out and those those letters out the next day.
2: Yeah. Look at I, I
0: think there's more words.
2: value in the ones that aren't KYC'd. Like if it's something that you're going to hold and you're going to resell to have something that's off book, like even bitcoins. I did this podcast back in the day on how I think black bitcoins, which are those bitcoins that came into the ecosystem from a miner and then were never KYC or tied to someone's identity, personally identifiable information. Those Bitcoins, whenever there's more regulation and more control over the Bitcoin space, the Bitcoin network, they're going to be more valuable than the Bitcoin that was bought off a of Coinbase. Where it's can we identify YC. those, John? Yeah.
0: Can those be identified like this particular piece? of Because almost nobody's trading a whole Bitcoin. You're trading pieces, parts, right? right? Yeah,
2: you can identify pieces all the way back down. And in fact, every time you send a Bitcoin…
0: This is a black Satoshi. We can do that?
2: Well, if it's black, then it can't be identified. But the white so the ones versus that it can't the black ones... can
0: identifies it.
2: Yeah. Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> I guess so. But there's so many of them out there that aren't identified, yeah, especially the ones know. from the early yeah. days. Yeah, every time you do... When you do a Bitcoin transaction, you're sending the entirety of the previous transaction that mm-hmm. you received, and then you get some of it back, right? And there's even Bitcoin that was used during the Silk Road. I was at the Silk Road trial for Ross Ulbricht, and to hear those... FBI experts and the private contractors talk about the depth of their forensic analysis on the Bitcoin blockchain was just kind of like, whoa, if they really want to come track it down and trace it. There's even speculation that the NSA was involved on getting dirt and getting the evidence on Ross Ulbricht. But that's why everyone's like, well, Bitcoin's compromised, cryptocurrency's bunk. But it's like, yeah, well, there's Monero, you know, which the IRS recently tried to give a little reward if someone could crack Monero. (laughs) That's how desperate they are. It just was to show you how great of a coin it is. Yeah, Monero's a good hold and a good investment for sure. And it's good if you're going to do illicit black market activities. It's the Speaking best one.
3: Speaking of and the Silk Road, isn't that like the best example that there is of what is possible without a KYC uh, financial system, right? Without using KYC, Ross was able to create the first, the world. I mean, we, humanity has been around for how many tens of thousands of years. We've never actually had a truly free market until Ross globally still road and the only way he was able to do that was by using a peer to peer currency like bitcoin so we got bitcoin in 2008 and right after that we had entrepreneurs putting this to use and creating a free market of course obviously like you just described the state had to leech off of his earnings and they kept it for themselves
0: well and there's there's only two reasons the state was able to get their hands on Ross one was it was easy to find out who he was they didn't hide who they were they didn't Try to disappear. Uh, there, actually, when Silk Road went away, there's an app called Open Bazaar that basically replaced it. And good luck. It's it's just like an app Doesn't that floats around right? in cyberspace. And good luck. Like people trade whatever they want. It. The other reason, and what they were able to make the the case to the jury with was, he tried to be ethical and said, no, you can't. Hire someone to shoot somebody in the face with buckshot. No, that's not okay. Right? Um, so they the CIA,
3: actually, CIA who is pursuing it, who do it every day. Because, yeah, sorry. Right?
0: Like, but they actually did delist or not allow the listing of some things, which made it where they could make the case that since you did that, when you did allow this, you're culpable. If they had built something where they physically could not have done that, And not been ethical, it would have been very hard to make a case Mm -hmm. because I'm like, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. The case was made that you allowed this thing. And there was also some claims that they did allow like some hits to be paid for and stuff like that. But he was never charged. That's all like slander. He was never actually charged or convicted on any of that shit. By the way, I, I know you know this, John, but a lot of people listening probably don't. Several of the investigators that were involved in the case were convicted of stealing money from Silk Road
2: mm-hmm. and went
0: to prison. And the jury that convicted Ross was not allowed to know that fact.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, it's the, one of the biggest real
3: to what was it? Tim Draper bought all of Ross's
2: bitcoins. Yeah. On an auction. Yeah. It, was, it looks like it was a good buy. Now when he bought it, it's gone up yeah. since then. I want to read real quick, just a, uh, something from Ross Ulbricht's writings. This was before I think the Silk Road actually launched. And this really just underscores how much of a badass he was, and he really is a libertarian hero. He talks about the purpose, what he was trying to do. He says, now my goals have shifted. I want to use economic theory as a means to abolish the use of coercion and aggression amongst mankind. Just as slavery has been abolished most everywhere, I believe violence, coercion, and all forms of force by one person over another can come to an end. The most widespread and systemic use of force is amongst institutions and governments, so this is my current point of effort. The best way to change a government is to change the minds of the governed, however. To that end, I am creating an economic simulation to give people a firsthand experience of what it would be like to live in a world without the systemic use of force. Man. Man. Yeah, he was an, he's his, the man.
3: Ross was in the man. Forbes. There's a, there's an article from Forbes. You could, the listeners can Google it, but he actually goes into his, uh, his, his inspiration, which was, uh, alongside night by J. Neil Shulman, which is sort of like the abhorrest, you know, yeah. handbook right there. So he knew what he was doing and he, and I think that's why they gave him, uh, double life plus 40. He never hurt anybody in his whole life. But he still got double life plus 40, more time than African dictators get at the Hague, more time than El Chapo got for creating a free market. And it was all done by the judge, judge, the federal witch, Captain B. Yeah. and Chuck Schumer,
2: um, the parasite from the Senate. Yeah, they wanted to make an example. That's, I think that
0: the – What sucks the most is they get to make him an yeah. example and scare everybody away, and it didn't work, and he still no. walks in prison for the rest of his life. So. Yeah,
2: yeah. Maybe some – there's still, like, the Free Ross movement and Lynn Ulbricht, like, that – we, us, you know, we're never going to let up. I, th- I feel hopeful that he's not going to carry out that full life sentence. Maybe the agorist cadre private security yeah. force will go bust him out someday. Sorry, feds. <laughs> joking, <laughs> of course, maybe. Um, but free Ross. Yeah, org yep. for sure. Uh You brought up – um alongside night. And in that novel, there is a cadre of agorists. And one of the things that they do is they're constantly switching out their hideout. And, uh, you know, they anticipate the feds are going to bust their hideout and they already have the next one set up and they secretly let everyone know where it is. And I think that's a good agorist tip to think. And this is something that Jack's good with the macro trends and the trends and stuff to go ahead and anticipate what the state's move could be know your weaknesses know your vulnerabilities and anticipate and forecast what the state could do to harm you to shut you down and have plan b plan c like when jack when you talked about the preps and having a bug out spot and then practicing three different routes. That was like, wow, that's a, that's a pretty high level of, of awareness, you know? And so I think for us to act in this, when we're doing something under the table, when we're doing something agorist, black or gray market, just be conscious of how it could come crumbling down and try to have a workaround, a backup plan, a getaway house or whatever. Cause that's, you know, the man is pretty damn good at cracking down on people, but I think through creativity and, and foresight, we can we can be better.
0: And I think the other thing you do with that is like some things you can end up being Ross Albrighted, right? You can end up in Club Fed, maybe not double life plus 20, whatever it is, but maybe for five years. I don't want to go to Club Fed for five years. Like I, I was trying to do something one time with property development where a guy from from the government who liked me came and said, They will put you in club fed. And I'm well, I'm not doing that then. However, there are other things that you can do where the risk is different. Like you've done some things, John, where they came and said, You can't do that anymore. So you just stopped doing it until you found out you could and then started doing it again. And when they came back said, turns out I can do this. So like your risk was they'll come shut you down for a day. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. In other situations, you can actually look up what the penalty is if you get caught doing what you're doing. And let's say the penalty is a five thousand maximum penalty for that offense is a five thousand dollar fine. Well, then I'm going to look at it and go, how much money can I make doing this? <laughs> because yeah. if I can make $50,000 a year doing something that I'm going to get a $5,000 fine for, yeah. yeah, I may never have to pay it, but I might build up a slush fund. And if I get caught, there it is. <laughs> and it's just a cost of doing business. There were people before Uber and, and Lyft kind of came in, they were running underground taxis in New York. The tax dollars and they just kind of figured out, you know what? It doesn't matter. If I get caught and have to pay a fine, I'm still ahead. Yeah. So good agorists always build risk into the profit model. If I get caught, how do I mitigate the results and how, how much is it going to cost me and how much do I need to raise my price to quickly build up a slush fund that covers the offense? Yeah. And, and that's learning from the crony capitalists. Because yeah. when some guy makes like, Fifty billion dollars with insider trading, and they 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 find him two billion dollars. He doesn't give two shits. He doesn't care. I got forty eight billion out of the deal. I'm good. Yeah,
2: that's
3: a key point, Jeff. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Go ahead, Nicole.
1: Oh, just gonna, a quick comment. Uh, and yet, people still don't see the government as the mafia extorting you.
2: Yeah. Next. And, um,
3: that's <laughs> actually the point that Jack's making about building, weighing risk into your, your cost analysis. That's a point that Sam Conkin makes. I think it's in New Libertarian Manifesto, he talks about this. And I think a, a great way to sort of mitigate that risk <clears throat> is by jumping all in where it's possible. So we, we spoke a little bit about, um, you know, the challenges that people face accepting and using cryptocurrencies when who run a business. One thing I've found is that if you just jump all in 100%, you sort of mitigate that risk. I mean, if you put all of your assets, right, if you have a legal business and you put all those assets into cryptocurrency, you know, based on history, it's not guaranteed, but um, the price of Bitcoin moves up. So if you did this at the beginning of the year, you're up 43% today. So that's, that's one way that you can sort of take away the risk of doing business in a sort of gray market or black market fashion is by utilizing all of the profit margin that you possibly can. Yeah. You
0: know, and I, I don't know how exactly you can apply this to agorism, but like the, one of the real estate models that people do is you buy a property and you start, you turn it into an income property. Then you buy another one, you turn it into an income property. You take the income off the second property and you pay down the mortgage of the, of the first property. As soon as the first properties pay off, you buy a third property. And you keep leveraging higher and higher and higher as you do it. But you only ever actually owe money on two properties at one time. And mainly, you only really owe money on one. If you get 12 properties in and you totally screw the pooch and you get a property repossessed, you still have 11 properties Mm -hmm. and you don't care. So thinking that way with agorism and let's say thinking about your money not in my agorist business – but in individual verticals and treating, t- treating each vertical like a revenue sector, right? Like an individual revenue stream, an individual business, so that if any one of them gets taken out, okay. You know, that's, that's back to Trump's thing where, yeah, three of my businesses went bankrupt. I have 120. I don't care. Like yeah. that's that, that mindset that the crony capitalists have – we can. Curtis Stone said that long ago. We can learn lessons from the cronies. I heard him say that at, at Permaculture Voices back in like 2014. We can learn lessons from the cronies by using those models in our own businesses.
2: Yeah, we can learn from from the big tax exempt foundations and all these folks, passing, like really changing society. I found that what you were referencing. I just want to read it from Samuel Reckon because he's the you know he's the godfather of all this. What Sal was talking about the risk and what Jack was bringing up. He says using our agorist model, we can see how the protection industry must evolve. Firstly, why do people engage in countereconomics with no protection? The payoff for the risk they take is greater than their expected loss. This statement is true, of course, for all economic activity, but for countereconomics it requires special emphasis. The fundamental principle of countereconomics is to trade risk for profit. The higher the expected profit, the greater the risk taken. Note that if risk is lowered, a lot more would be attempted and accomplished. Surely an indicator that a free society is wealthier than an unfree one. And then he talks about how trading with trusted agorists can really help to dramatically lower risk. So I always get back on the protection racket or the protection force, right? He talks a lot about how the agorists – will finance and fund their own private security force to protect them from the statists. And that's kind of what we're aiming for with Freedom Cells when we grow large enough, right? Then it makes it so much easier to engage in risk because you have your own private security force that can protect you from private criminals and public criminals alike. So I always got my eye on the prize of like, what is our agorist cadre community going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? And what steps are we going to have to take to really live as free as possible without always having to look over our back?
0: You know, this is where I wish I wish Vin was still with us because he talked about how he got into this whole world through the escort business. Right. And he realized in that business, this was like an all cash business. There's big corporations involved in, in that business. And, you know, if some girl ends up in a hotel room somewhere with some guy that's being abusive, calling the police is not necessarily a good idea. But these companies have, like, private security and, like, three dudes are coming through your door with a MAC-10 each. And, and this shit's going to stop now. And, and this yeah. business actually runs and works and and, and, and works beautifully. This is not streetwalkers and pimps. In fact, it makes that go away. And and that opened his whole mind – I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's what I got out of it – to this entire concept of, of agorism and libertarianism and true free markets. You know, when he was involved with the show Gigolos and all that, like that's where he, he, he kind of came into all this and started doing videos about it. And I think like, okay, so if that – it's a lot like Bitcoin, right? Like, that's, that's what I love about Bitcoin. It's not that Bitcoin's the perfect crypto. It's really not. It's got a lot of flaws. But what it did, it took this idea that only government could actually make a successful money. It just shitcanned it. Like, that's just gone. And it opens people's minds, people that are persuadable, to like, well, if we can make our own money, then what can't we do? And if we can have an industry like that run with its own private security, why can't any industry run with its own private security?
3: Yeah, private security is really the sort of uh, holy grail of agorism, right? That's that, that's really what's gonna that's sort of what's what's gonna tip the scales in our favor. A great um, entrepreneur in this area would be Dale Brown, who has yeah. uh, Detroit Threat Management, where he's trying to create alternatives. And he's no agorist, but he is definitely not an agorist. He's working in that direction, though, which you know we can all appreciate, regardless of what your ideology may be. The other point I just want to add is that you know when you talk about risk and we have to we have to weigh risk factors, you also have to weigh the risk of remaining compliant and obedient mm. because that's where the greatest risk actually is. Um, you know, when I look at tax compliance, for example, I'm risking a lot. That's that's a pretty heavy um, you know agorist activity right there, but. On the other end, what am I risking by, by paying taxes? Well, I'm, like, I'm, going to be fun, I'm going to be funding a famine in Yemen where children are starving to death. I'm going to be funding the drone bombing of 19 pine nut farmers. All these terrible things. Yeah. That's a much greater risk to me than having to do, uh, you know, spending some time as a guest of the governor.
2: Yeah, you're funding your own oppression, too, and you're funding the IRS's ability to come seek you out. Um, it reminded me, of we went to Oklahoma MidFest, I did a podcast about it. It was this it was one of these decentralized liberty festivals where it like spontaneous order is the thing. There's not necessarily an organizer and there's not a schedule and really it's just a bunch of agorist hippies getting together and hanging out in the woods and, and talking shop. But I did a presentation on freedom cells and one of the women that was in the audience said, you know, I've I've been familiar with freedom cells for a couple of years, but I never signed up on the website. My concern is that if a bunch of militia types start to get involved, how that could affect us or if the government would come crack down on us. I have a daughter who's my main priority. I'm in this to, as a family person. And this guy, Mike, who was the non-organizer organizer of MidFest, he like hated when you're like thanking him for organizing because he's the one that set up the idea and stuff. But he was like, you know, we need to have some skin in the game and we need to be willing to take risk if we want Freedom. If we want to achieve our goal. And he pointed out this essay by Ernest Hancock, who's like a classic old school, like one of the founding fathers of the libertarian movement. He's the one that came up with the Ron Paul revolution with the E.V.O.L. the love thing. And uh, one of the little things talks about risk. And it says. um, Shit, let me see. Uh, Basically, he says, if you're not doing risk, if you're not taking risk, then you're not radical enough. Your activism isn't radical enough if you're not taking risks. And I always point out, too, like even if you're not doing something counter economic, the government could still crush you. Like Sandra Bland, this African-American woman, she got pulled over. She like slightly flexed her rights during the traffic stop. Then she ended up dead like the next day in jail, Texas Department of Public Safety. There's people all the time that get crushed by the state. And in some ways, like with the firearm, it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. It's better to have a community and not need it than for the state to come hound you down and you're all alone. It's better to have that strength in numbers. Mine well, well, the
0: mitigation the mitigation you have, John, with Freedom Cells is you're not doing the militia thing the way that it's been done in the past Or like, I can't remember the name, but there was, I, mean, I think it was, they called themselves Republic of Texas, right? And they all went out to West Texas and they had, like, a 50-acre place in the middle of a desert and they're all, like, living in a trailer together. Well, they're centralized. Mm-hmm. If you want to take that out or the branch Davidians, right? They're all in one place. You're not saying, Hey, let's all move to the, uh, the John Bush compound east of Austin, right? You're, you're like saying, Hey, like, why don't we all band together and form this alliances and agreement? But if I'm part of one of your freedom cells, I still live here at nine mile farm. Nicole still lives and lives free in Tennessee. Sal lives wherever he lands next. He's in Florida now, right? Like, That's a lot harder to kind of get your arms around and shut down. What are you Mm going to do? Like, drag me in and go like, "Oh, well, you're part of this group. What group?
2: Yeah, it's like a non-group group. group. What group?
0: What are you talking about? Where are these? They're not here. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's like, yeah, we, yeah, there's some people we hang out together and we talk about like fishing and hunting and guns. Is that illegal? I didn't think that was illegal. No. Do Do you have a warrant for my arrest for that? No. Then fuck off. Like, I mean, yeah. like, there has to be a point, like you talked about this lady ended up in prison. And, and I think the place for that conversation is probably not the side of the road, with the auto stop. That is the worst place to assert your rights, because there are the most number of ways that they can find an excuse to arrest you. Yeah. When you're talking to somebody at somebody's house and you don't have a warrant to come inside their house. That person can pretty much tell you to go shove your head up your own ass a thousand times. And there's, as a cop, there's not very much you can do about it. Side of the road, I, if I'm a cop on the side of the road, I can find a reason to arrest you on yeah. an auto stop. Make I can't. Period. It's yeah. not right, but I can.
3: Tell that to Breonna Taylor, Jack. They, they can't
0: commit he her They kicked her door in and started shooting. That's, that's – that's, More that's, often that's totally than not, creepy. at least
2: there's some yeah, – That's like, not hey, hey, I heard
0: yeah, you're yeah, part it's... of John John Bush's shit, right? That's – They actually – Like, the people that should go into jail for that are the ones that ran the warrant in the first place. And, and like, that situation, the big tragedy there is they were in the wrong place. They're the wrong guy. That's the real
2: That's another example of the government could harm you or kill you, whether you're part of a freedom cell or whether you're opting out. It's better to have, have your crew. And on the side of the road, you may bring up a good point. I, I talked about earlier how I switched my tactics when I had kids. I used to be the provocative guy that didn't care if he got arrested because then it would just mean I could fight it in court, and I, I was recording it so I could sue them or whatever. Yeah. I switched my tactics from provocative cop blocking, telling the <laughs> cop off, trying to make him feel guilty for being a cop, to Jedi mind tricks where – you talk understandingly with them, and I remember, even remember when I was like going through a divorce, and it was like all terrible. I had in the back of my head, if I get pulled over for speeding, because I had to drive three hours to pick my kids up every week, a oh couple times because their mom lived far away. I was like, if I get pulled over for speeding. I'm going to tell them I'm going through a whole lot. I'm struggling with this really difficult divorce, and i got to get the kids back to their mom. I don't yeah. want to be late because it's going to look poorly on you know, and you just kind yeah. of appeal their heartstrings. I think that's a really valuable strategy when dealing with the police.
0: And with the so, divorce oh, rate of oh, cops, they'll probably identify with you.
2: That's right. Then you can tell them, yeah, you know, we're divorcing because I was beating the hell out of her, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, oh, me too.
0: Brother? <laughs> <There it laughs>
2: <laughs> That's not fair, but yeah, uh, it's true though. Unfortunately, the
0: statistically, it is.
2: Forty percent.
3: Forty percent of police spouses uh, report domestic violence.
1: And there's a reason why. The military though, like,
3: too. It's sort of it's an
0: authority thing.
3: Tracks that sort of personality, that sort of you know psychopathy.
0: I think there's part of that. I think the other part of it is the job itself destroys people.
3: Yeah, it's I think stressful. good people
0: go into law enforcement and it destroys them. I I have a brother-in-law who's a cop. He's one of the best people I know. And I I can tell he is ready to put a gun to his own head and blow his brains out. Mm -hmm. I can tell when I talk to him, like he doesn't, he hates his own life at this point. And I think the better person you are, the more that's true 20 years into being in law enforcement, the more you'll want to kill yourself instead of somebody else. You know, so I, it's, it just seems like a terrible job choice at this point.
2: Yeah. It's
3: a terrible job choice.
2: Yeah, just don't do it. Same thing be with joining productive. the military.
3: Be an entrepreneur. Be productive. Don't be a leech.
2: I think one thing um, a lot of people, this can help with agorism and just life in general, is people have to be willing to do the work, right? And it was uh, Thomas Paine who wrote, that which we obtain too lightly, we esteem too cheaply. And he also said, the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. So obviously it's easy to just go pull the lever on the ballot box and expect to vote to vote a libertarian or Donald Trump's going to help us. That's like low skin in the game, not a good investment. If you want to have an ideal life where you run your own business, where it makes it easier for you to opt out and still have wealth and the freedom to live your life on your own terms, it's going to take a lot of work. And I think a lot of people these days, especially. My generation, the, the millennials, I, I don't know if I said this joke on a, on the previous show, but I, I self-identify as Generation X, right? So don't misgeneration me like the misgendering <laughs> thing. I resonate more with the MTV Generation X coming of age with the Internet and stuff than the millennials. But I think a lot of younger millennials and stuff expect to, to be spoon-fed and expect to have life uh, revolve around them. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you want your ideal life, you got to put some work into it. And if you want that life to be a life that where you're pretty damn close to living as a sovereign as much as you can, it's going to take some work. It's going to take some risk. It's going to take some investment. It's going to take some, some change in your life. You know,
1: well, I think that's part of why you is need to be an entrepreneur conclude. risky anyway.
2: Sorry, Nicole, yeah. but that's okay. saying, we
1: always talk at the same time. <laughs> we're all
0: fired up
2: on this show. So let's say <laughs> I'm not going to
0: go to, I wasn't going to go to jail for creating survival podcast. But when I sold out my interest in the corporation that I was an owner in and went off to podcast for the rest of my life, wasn't that a risk? Yeah. Like nothing you do in life worth freaking doing in the first place comes without risk anyway. It's just what is the risk? The risk was I could have went bankrupt and not able to support my family after 20 years of successful. That was the risk. Yeah, that's that's no that's a bigger risk to me than they might find me five grand. If I find me five grand, I'll pay the fine. I'll bitch about it. You know, I'll, I'll complain about it a lot. I'll probably run an MSB sale with a discount code. Jack's fine. <laughs> to Try to pay for it. <laughs> He's but
2: has got that in his back pocket. But I'm
0: going to pay, I'm just going to go on with my life. Right. I'm not going to be like you're not going to destroy me because you charged me five thousand dollars in extortion fees. I pay extortion fees every year anyway. They're called taxes. Mm-hmm. That's just another tax to me.
2: Yeah, the only way to absolve all risk and not to have any risk at all in life is to wear a mask.
0: Or go yeah, to school. Yeah. I mean, go to jail. You go to jail, you don't. Well, then you get risk and shanked, you or get you shanked. know, traded for lucky strikes or whatever. What
1: I don't were know you going to say, get Nicole?
0: All risk.
2: I don't remember. It was
1: a while ago. It's okay.
2: All right. Yeah, you can't get all, out of all risk. And if you lived a life with no risk, it would be the most boring, bland life ever. What Thomas Jefferson said, he'd rather have dangerous liberty than peaceful servitude. And I think when in the covid era, so many people are so damn afraid of covid that they're not living their lives and they're missing out on their grandkids or on their dying parents. And I think it's really unfortunate. You can't have a life without risk. There's always going to be some level of risk. Driving a freaking automobile is probably one of the most risky things that we do all the time, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I like noticed
0: that actually, a lot of the old people are supposedly the ones we're supposed to worry about are the ones that don't give a two shits about
2: COVID. They I do. noticed that in Florida.
0: Yeah. They're like, screw that. I'm 88. I don't care. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm going to die anyway sooner or later. Yeah. Like I, if I start worrying about risk now, like why would I? I, I, I look back at like people like my grandparents And I think thank God they're not here to see this because I I think I would cry (laughs) to watch like my depression era coal mining grandfather told he has to wear a mask and he can't go to his favorite little bar on the corner of town because he might get sick. That's a guy that lived through actual pandemics with the Spanish flu with with smallpox Mm -hmm. like the the, those people, if they could come back from the grave today, I think they might fix everything because they start just beating everybody's ass. My old coal mining grandfather and his wife, my little Ukrainian grandmother, she would be out beating the shit out of people over this today. I'm telling you right now. <laughs> that's a little, Turning
2: their mask red.
0: Man. Four foot eight inches of freaking hellfire, man. Like, you, yeah. He
2: runs in the family, I see.
0: We're just such
1: pussies anymore. We really are.
2: What's this we well, business? That's why Dad? we're
1: imploding.
0: Well, I say we as in people that live in this landmass we call America. That's why we're
1: imploding. It's because people lost their thick skin. Yeah, their chutzpah, and that's been programmed into us,
2: right? To lose our thick skin. I think
0: we've been chemically castrated as males, honestly, with the diet we're on. I mean,
2: Alex Jones and the gay frogs. That's a. That's actually a thing. The frogs gay
0: man. It's true. (laughs) The fluoride. The fluoride, too. It's a trip. I'm making a foil hat for John for next episode. So
1: I thought we should do an episode the original on conspiracy. question, all were including um, mistakes we've made along the way. I don't think we've covered mistakes we've made along the way. probably end there. Which though. I think would be a good thing to talk about.
3: That's why I sort of ju- jumped in there about um, jumping all in, <clears throat> because that's one of the biggest mistakes that I made early on was not jumping all in. Um, had I put all of my Wealth into cryptocurrency. When I first found out about it, I wouldn't be talking to you from Florida. I'd be talking to you from some skyscraper in some luxury, you know, resort right now. But you sort of stutter step and you second guess yourself. And we, you know, we spoke a lot about risk, and you, you sort of that, that weighs on your mind. But remove all that from consideration, and you know, going back to what John said about that conking quote, just stick with consistency. And if it's if it's the consistent approach, then it's the right approach. And I think that's really the whole key to to
2: engaging in agorism. Nice. Well, I think one of the mistakes that I made and I'm still making and not as good as I could be is like Jack was talking about running the above ground business as strategically as possible. So as to limit your tax liability, there's so much that I could do. um, Like I may be at the point where switching to a corporation would have certain tax advantages over an LLC uh For example, your corporation can have a health care plan and the corporation pays the health care. It's not something that you pay out of pocket. It's not that it doesn't have to be income. It can be an expense. All the things that you can transfer from income to an expense are super valuable. Also having the business pay for the car or the lease or whatever. So I think getting aware of that even before you go into it not to stop you from getting into it, because the best thing to do is just to dive in. You can sort things out and shift things out later. But just having that consciousness every time you pull out the card, ask yourself, is there a different way to do this? Could this be a business lunch? You know what I'm saying? And I remember, like, I went to lunch with one buddy uh, just to catch up with old friends. And I was like, I'm going to pay for this one. And then the fact that we went to lunch that one day together, maybe talked a little bit about business, that gave me the Freedom to feel like, hey, maybe we went to several lunches, uh, at the same restaurant to talk about the same thing. And then I believe that the next generation is really important. And to that end, I just started this uh, group. I shared it in the Unloose the Goose Facebook and Tech Telegram. It's a, it's a Facebook group and a Telegram chat group called So You Want to Pull Your Kids Out of Government School. And it's going to be a support group for parents that already have, parents that want to, to provide resources. Because more and more I've been thinking, we really need to focus on the next generation. Uh, We're going to get as far as we can, as far as advancing liberty, but really where the where the action is going to happen is going to be the next generation, even the generation after that. And I've been studying the New World Order, Illuminati, all these tax exempt foundations and the Milner Group and the Council on Foreign Relations, and they adopt a multi-generational plan. They're not concerned with the election of the day. They're concerned with centuries instead of decades even. And so I think that we really need to start focusing on what can we do to empower the next generation so they are raised and they become ungovernable adults. And that's why I'm really trying to set the stage for my children to have freedom that I never even thought was possible.
1: When you Same got it, Jack, one. Nicole, yeah, I, go Jack.
0: I think one of the things we shouldn't lose sight of with making mistakes is that we we've all said this is about entrepreneurship and business. So business and mistakes are a gorse mistake, even if they're in your legitimate side of the business, John kind of touched on that with doing a better job with taxes. First of all, if you don't, think you can deduct your health insurance, you need a better account and not changing your corporate structure. We'll talk about that off offline. But um, like my biggest mistake has been trying to kickstart other people to get them into business, like to use my brand to help them. And, and several of those over the years have hurt me badly as they've imploded. Uh, they've hurt my credibility and things like that. And I, it's sad because I used to tell my old business partner, Neil, you're trying to breathe for people. And it turns out I was just trying to do it in a different form. And what I've realized, and like Nicole's perfect example of this, the people that are actually going to succeed are just going to fucking do it. And then you can help them once they fucking do it. Right. But trying to like find somebody and help them and, and build a platform for them underneath them and make an agreement with like that shit doesn't work. That always falls apart because if that person was going to do it, they would already have gotten on with doing it. So, like, I'm happy to help Nicole. I'm happy to help John. I'm happy to help Sal. i to say, hey, go to Sal and buy a printer because he already has a site. It already – like, I'm not going to like, hey, Sal, guess what we should do? We should come up with an idea, right? And then you're going to have these printers and you're going to ship them. like, that kind of shit has just blown up in my face over and over and over to where I won't do it. I won't – I might even float an idea and say, here, if somebody wants to take it and go with it, like, I, I can do this, man, we can work together. No, you go do that shit for two years, you come <laughs> back to me with it successful, and if I can pour some gas on your fire, I'll do it for you. But trying to help people out of the gate, all it does is get you shot in the ass. Don't, As you build success, you're like, don't do that shit. I know you want to. Mm. God, I wanted to. And what I realized is every person I did this for, I wanted them to be successful more than they wanted to be successful, and all it brought mm. me was
2: misery and pain. Wow. What are you, are you talking about? You promote people's little business yeah. or widgets on your show and they couldn't yeah. handle the demand. You know, and I
0: up? Up an idea. I'd say like, does somebody want to do this? And I'd interview a few people and I think like, this is my guy. This is the person that's actually going to do this shit. And then I would like throw in with them. Sometimes I even put money in. there were people that I'm like, I won't even take any profit back for this. I'll do everything I can to help you with this. And, and every single one of them whatever they were doing as their job was more important to them than this side business thing, because mm-hmm. they didn't have enough of that skin in the game. They hadn't taken enough risk. I got Jack Spear on my court. I'll be fine. Not if you don't do this shit. If I was going to do all the shit for you, I wouldn't need you. And, and like, so be careful with that because as you, a lot of these people listening to us, they're eventually going to start their own, like, you know, Joe blows podcast or whatever. They're going to get 300,000 listeners. They're going to be bigger than me or anybody on this audience. And they're going to be like, I have all this power. I can do something with it. They're going to want to do something good. And they're going to start coming up with these ideas and realize, I can't do everything I want to do. And if you want to give that idea up and let let the market do something, do it. But until that person has it running and operating successfully, stay the hell out of it or it will bite you in the ass every single time. Because Nicole didn't come to me and go, hey, Jack, if I build a coffee business, you talk about it. She's like, screw that shit. I'm going to go build a coffee business. Mm -hmm. Like some of the people that listen to me listen to Jack. I'm just going to use that and go. And then, like, once that happened, I'm sure I'll back your Kickstarter. Of course I'll back your – I'm talking about way back years ago, the first one. Of course I will. But that's because you were doing it, and I know if I said go buy coffee from Nicole and a person gave you money, son of a bitch, within a week, they were going to get coffee in the mail, (laughs) right? Like, that was actually going to happen.
2: Yeah. And I walk the walk, not just talk the talk.
0: Yeah. We built a caging business that fell the fuck apart. The guy that was supposed to run the site never did. I mean, I I can go ten of them that, like, hurt me and my reputation – And I will never, ever, 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 ever infinity do it again.
2: I know when you had me on about Kratom, you gave me a big old wave of sales. I was on with Tom Woods like a month before, and that just exploded my business. And I was literally up till 2 to 3 a.m. fulfilling orders because at that time it was just me. And then just a short two months later, I was on Jack And Jack's just exploded. And like you said, you gotta be, some people don't want it as bad as you do. I wanted it enough to stay up till 2 a.m. and then wake up the next morning at 7 a.m. to get the kids ready to go to their private school. You know, you gotta, gotta be willing to take massive action if you want change in your life, if you want an ideal life.
0: Yes. You weren't a partner. So if you fucked up, I would have been like, pay them people their money back, John, and gone on with my life. If I throw in with you as your partner and you Mm -hmm. fucked that up, then I did it. And and that is, that hurts, man. Don't do it.
2: Yeah. You want, yeah, you really got to, um,
1: you have to be real careful. check
2: someone out before you get in bed with them. Make sure they so, do a COVID test. Yeah.
1: I have one little different, and that is a lot of people look for the agorist communities to interact with. And I think it's important to know who those people are. I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast would be people that you can set up your networks and your exchange with. But a mistake I made early on was looking for that rather than just interacting with my community. And what, what happened when I changed that from looking for the Liberty people or the agorists to just looking for the community of people who, who I could interact with, I found that's where they were. They were not labeled as the agorist community. It was just, they were people within communities of interest, like the farmer's market, like, You know, people who love food, like people who love the kind of exercise I like to do. And the more I got out and interacting, the stronger it all was. And and that made it grow. Wherein before I was kind of operating as like Nicole Sauce all alone in the holler homestead with the couple of people who live near here.
2: That's good. Yeah, there's people that are already in your circle that are just that already are agorists or they just need a quick conversation to to spur them Spur them along, and, or they'll teach they, you something.
1: They, well, I they mean, don't John, necessarily like, just, need to know they are, right? Like, if they just have the same sort of philosophy, they don't necessarily need the label. Yep. Yeah.
0: Well, like, if John's selling Kratom or Sal's selling a uh, printer or whatever, and I'm going to pay in Bitcoin, when I'm in that order process, it doesn't like halfway through the process, go, wait a minute, are you in a chorus? Check yes or no. <laughs> you don't give a shit. You just care that I'm buying your shit and I'm paying in Bitcoin. You don't care. If I consider myself an agorist or not, you you just want my money or my numbers, right? It's not
3: real
2: money.
3: You're a fellow agorist.
2: There you go.
0: Are you an agorist? No, you can't buy this. Like, that's not
2: (laughs) not good business. (laughs) (laughs) I'll sell to communists.
0: One day we'll get there. Of course I will have their money now.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, man, we had a great chat today. I think it was a, a lively one, talking about agorism, what we've learned about agorism, some tips, strategies, some mistakes we've made, and what brought us to agorism. And you know, even though New Libertarian Manifesto, when was New Libertarian Manifesto written? There, Sal, the 80s, early 90s, late 80s, like, uh, late 80s,
3: I want
2: to say. So even though that work was written quite a long time ago, it kind of, it was in 1983, 1980 was the first, the first publication. It kind of rested in obscurity. And then I think the modern libertarian movement exploded after Ron Paul. And then a lot of people quickly evolved into anarcho-capitalism and voluntarism and whatever, the labels again with the labels. But I think that this is still a really early idea. So for the folks listening to this podcast, contemplating agorism, engaging in the counter economy I mean, the counter economy is ages old. There's always been a counter economy. But adding this libertarian anti-state deliberately, provocatively anti-state spin is, is a pretty new thing. So consider yourself an early pioneer. Go easy on yourself. Find the others, whether they call themselves an or not. And uh, I think one of the things that we can take away from this episode is be willing to put some skin in the game, but do it strategically. All right. Follow us over at unloosethegoose.com. Follow the podcast. If you haven't yet, join the Telegram group. Join the Facebook group where we're building pretty solid community of support there. We'd love for you to be a part of it. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 16 of Unloose the Goose. Peace and freedom, honk, you guys.
1: Honk, honk, honk. honk. Be the goose.
0: Unloose the
1: Goose
0: We'll take no